0: We're going to go ahead and and get started. While TC's uh, not listening and distracted, if you'd like to say thanks, I left a basket up front. If you'd like to give a thank you offering for this series. This is our last week uh, with Job, and I'm grateful again that TC would take the time and make the effort, especially while he's not feeling well. Next week, there'll be a series starting. Pastor Dave's going to lead it with the discipleship team. It'll go through uh, Palm Sunday. The The title is something like Sabbath Defense, uh, Resisting the uh, Temptations of the World. After Easter, we have a series starting, and right now it's tentatively... Well, it started eight weeks. It's now ten weeks, and who knows how long it's going to go because uh, John Guy and Zev Rosenberg have put together a kind of a world comparison religions topic where we're going to be examining Christianity, Islamism and Judaism and comparing and contrasting. We have outside speakers coming in from both faiths uh, and as you know uh, Zev and John represent the Christian faith well. So I look forward to all these series. We welcome you back and look forward to uh, an exciting spring. Let's open in prayer. Father God, this week as I contemplated Lent, I was also struck by a reading of a storyteller from the Tale of Two Cities saying the, the best of times and the worst of times. And I thought, wow, isn't that the emotion of Lent? I also was reminded that Once again, the word is not contained within the tomb, but it is a living word, and it is a word that we will hear today. And just like Christ could not be contained, your word will not come back empty. So open our hearts and our minds and make this written word become living word, not just in our minds, but in our actions and in all we do. And may it represent your will, in this world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.
1: Thank you all for coming again. Um, <clears throat> so, if, if you've been with me in previous series, uh, you're used to learning at least one Hebrew word. Uh, and, and, and this time, but this time, uh, we've gone three weeks without learning a Hebrew word. So today, we're going to learn at least one. Uh, and, and this word is, uh, is an interesting word, because uh, it, it, there's, uh, I, I'm writing in Hebrew here, there we go, there's, it's pronounced gibor, and Hebrew uses root letters, and so, let me illustrate root letters, so there, uh, this is how I learned MLK, when you think of MLK, you think of Mardoq King, King, right? In Hebrew, MLK or <coughs> Maim, Lamet, and Kaf uh, means King. So MLK, King. So that's how I memorize that word. So for example, <coughs> Malach MLK in that pronunciation means to rule or reign as King. Melech means King, a person. Makah is a queen, machut is kingdom, and so forth. So you can take the same letters and make it, uh, so you, you have derivations of the same word. Uh, and, and, and English does that too, right? And so this word gibor comes from Gavar or geber, and it means something like a mighty warrior. Typically re- uh, applies to um, a younger man, But someone who is mighty and strong and powerful. And that's the word, Gibor. (coughs) Now, we're going to come back to that word in just a few minutes. But (coughs) I'd like to share with you a little story. (coughs) Um, 9-11 happened when I was actually home that day. And I'm sure many of you remember where you were when that happened. Uh, And I had no idea what was going on. Because when I'm home, I'm in my books. And uh, my mother called me and she was frantic and she said, you gotta turn on the news. So I did and I'm on the phone with her and we're watching the news together and I'm still on the phone with her. Uh, and, and as you all remember, the coverage of that went on for days and days and days and weeks. And <clears throat> the first Sunday uh, after 9-11, I was at church and there was this somber feeling Uh, in the congregation, obviously, for good reasons. And I was looking forward to grieving together, processing some of this together, uh, among other believers. And what I found was none of that. Whoever had planned the church service that day decided it's all been planned, we're just gonna do it. So we sang happy songs about how great God is, the sermon was whatever had, I don't even remember what the sermon was, but it had nothing to do with what happened. It just, any other day, it was just planted there. And I could sense, not just myself, but other worshipers there feeling, what exactly are we doing? Is this what church is? It's a program that we have, and it was a fairly larger church, so I understand there's a lot that goes into. Um, planning a Sunday morning service. But I remember walking away and going home with my family, thinking that was not at all what I thought we would do, uh, or what I'd hoped we would do. And I didn't realize it then, uh, but now I see what, what was missing in that moment. The the ancient people of God uh, had a collection of their own, what you and I would call worship music or worship songs, or their hymnal, so to speak. It wasn't just a hymnal. It was almost like a book of common prayers. So they had prayers and uh, there was liturgy involved. So there's um, lots of different kinds of poetry that you find in this collection. And the collection is called the Book of Psalms. It is the largest of all the books in our Bible. Because it is quite extensive, isn't it? Uh, you have to have all these different kinds of poetry for different occasions, um, and, and scholars have classified these poems, psalms, into categories. So, for example, there's a, a royal psalm; it's a psalm about a king. Or there's um, the psalm of Thanksgiving; it'd be a great psalm to, to pray or, or or praise or sing during our Thanksgiving holidays. Uh, they had categories like hymn, which was well, a hymn, it's a praise song. On any given day you could sing a hymn. And then there is the lament. And guess which of all the different categories that you find the most of in the collection? <laughs> lament. It is by far the most common category that we find in the scriptures. And when I was a young man in grad school, that was just a fact I had to memorize, check. I can answer that on a test. What is the most common form of lament in the Hebrew Bible? Lament, two kinds, communal lament and individual lament. There are even two kinds of those. So you can communally lament and you can individually lament. So as a young man, I I checked it and could regurgitate all the facts about it, the form and all that. And it didn't occur to me until more recently why the people of God who worshiped together collected the songs in such a way that the most common form was lament. And it's this. It most accurately reflects our reality. When we walk around our days, yes, there are days when we are full of thanksgiving. Praise the Lord for this and thank God for this. But more often than not, we need a lament. (laughs) Every day, there's something that happens that causes us to lament. Um, I had some Hebrew students to my house Friday. They called it a Hebrew party. (laughs) It was an actually long marathon session, four hours of studying Hebrew. Uh, But these are such super-duper nerds. (laughs) that uh, they, were, they called it a Hebrew party, and were th- one student actually said this was the best day, not best class, best day she's ever had.
0: Because
1: <laughs> we just sat there for four hours working through parts of Esther. I did order pizza for them, <laughs> so it was kind of a party. Uh, <clears throat> and we were talking about um, the kinds of suffering that causes us to lament. And these are all very young people, and, and um, I, couldn't, I couldn't quite convince them that the holidays get tougher and tougher every year, Every any holiday. Uh, I mentioned last time about my father passing away on the 5th of July, the 4th of July night, 12.05 a.m. Can you imagine my 4th of Julys now, since then, or Christmases, or Thanksgivings? And so I was trying to explain, yeah, you love these holidays right now, but they take on different nuance and feeling. Yes, you can still celebrate them, hopefully with great joy. But there is a part of every holiday in my life now that's darkened. And lament, individual lament and communal lament, serve such an important place in the Christian living that it is the most common prayer the most common song, the most common poem in the Bible. So after 9-11, I had hoped, I think. I didn't know what I hoped for. But looking back, I would have talked to the pastor and said, let's lament together. Let's grieve together. Out loud. Process this. Um, I don't often enjoy uh, a, a typical evangelical church service, I'll be honest, because... This is the typical order of service. You walk into a church and you stand up. People, there's a worship leader who welcomes you. You stand up and immediately we're supposed to sing songs It's about how much we love God, how much we adore God. And I have to stand there looking at these words and I think, I just had a fight with my wife this morning trying to get here. (laughs) I don't feel that at all. I'm looking at the screen going, I can lie to God. As if God wouldn't know what I was feeling. I could lie, like, I love you, how great you are. Um, But I'm not sure if that's worship. So the reason I think the laments outnumber any other psalm is that it accurately accurately reflects our experiences. What we're going to read today uh, is one of those laments. It's, if you could turn to Job three, oh, of all the laments in the Bible, this one's my favorite. Uh, only not only because it has a historical and literary context that you can put into. So the, this is the lament of uh, a man named Job, and we we've studied his suffering. <clears throat> If you found Job 3, I'd like us to just spend some time in it, Uh, and and rather than parsing out every verb or repetition or syntax and things that I normally point out, I would just like to read it straight through uh, for a good portion of it, if you don't mind. So, uh, chapter 3 of Job, the first two, ch- two verses are very short, and it introduces the song. So, uh, this is where the poetry begins. Chapter 1 and 2 had the narrative, the prose, and so the prose introduces the events around this. And so, after this event has happened, chapter 3, verse 1 begins, after, Afterward, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. Remember, his wife said, curse God and die. And he'd never cursed God. He, he chastises her gently that we can't. Um, but then he's willing to curse the day of his birth. And this is the curse, and he said. So, uh, t- verse 3. And I'm going to put my, um, my version down, and, and I've copied uh, what's called a net Bible. And N-E-T, the New English Translation, and, and they try to render some of the poetry in a way that I think is appropriate. So I'm gonna read from that version, if you don't mind. The handout actually has that version at the bottom half of your first page. Um, this, that handout, if you're going to read that anyway, follow along, then you can check out uh, the little underlined lines because that's uh, very important. But I'm going to read for, for a bit. So let's start in verse 3. Let the day on which I was born perish. And the night, that said, a man has been conceived. That day, let it be darkness. Let not God on high regard it. Nor let light shine on it. Let darkness and the deepest shadow claim it. Let a cloud settle on it. Let whatever blackens the day terrify it. That night, let darkness seize it. Let it not be included among the days of the year. Let it not enter among the number of the months. Indeed, let that night be barren. Let no shout of joy penetrate it. Let those who curse the day curse it, those who are prepared to rouse Leviathan. Let its morning stars be darkened. Let it wait for daylight and find none. Nor let it see the first rays of dawn, because it did not shut the doors of my mother's womb on me, Nor did it hide trouble from my eyes. Up to that point, he's cursing the day. Um, He said he begins with the day that he was born, but he goes back to the night that he was conceived. Let that night disappear. May I never have been conceived. But then he moves on to a different part of that poem. If I had to be conceived, let this be the truth. Uh, Verse 11, why did I not die at birth? And why did I not expire as I came out of the womb? Why did the knees welcome me? And and why were there two breasts that I might nurse at them? For now, I would be lying down and would be quiet. In other words, if you were dead, born of a stillbirth, I would be asleep and then at peace with kings and counselors of the earth who built for themselves places now desolate, or with princes who possessed gold, who filled their palace with silver? Or why was I not buried like a stillborn infant, like infants who have never seen the light? There the wicked cease from turmoil, and there the weary are at rest. There the prisoners relax together, they do not hear the voice of the oppressor small and great are there and the slave is free from his master if he had born dead he thinks that would have been fine because at least there he would find rest but now that he is alive and living and a man so he couldn't he wished he was never conceived and if he had to be born, he wished he had born dead. And now, verse 20, why does God give light to one who is in misery and life to those whose soul is bitter? To those who wait for death that does not come and search for it more than the hidden treasures. Who rejoice even to jubilation and are exultant when they find the grave? Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden and whom God has hedged in? For my sighing comes in place of my food and my groaning flows forth like water. For the very thing I dreaded has happened to me and, I, what, I, and what I feared has come upon me. I have no ease. I have no quietness. I cannot rest. Turmoil has come upon me. What a beautiful poem. <laughs> and yet it's about suffering and pain. Um, <coughs> when I teach the book of Lamentations, a whole book in the Bible, that's about lamenting, by the way, and I, wasn't, I didn't even include that in my uh, discussion of the Psalms. There's an entire book called Lamentations, and there are five chapters, uh, and... When I teach the Lamentations, <coughs> my students are often surprised at how, how beautiful it's structured. So there are 22 verses. If you ever go back and read Lamentations, there are 22 verses in each chapter, except for the middle one. There are five chapters. And the first one has 22 verses. The second one has 22 verses. The fourth one has 22. And the fifth one has 22. And it's because the Hebrew alphabet has 22. So if you count them, they're 22. And out of those, so each line begins with the first letter of the alphabet, Aleph. Next line begins with Beit, which is it's like our B. Um, aleph Beit. Do you hear the word alphabet? Aleph Beit Gimel Dalet. We I don't know why we call we call our letters alphabet because that comes from alpha beta. We don't call our letter A alpha. It's A B C's, but we still call it alphabet. <laughs> Alphabetical. It's like we don't have alphabet. We have A B C's. Uh, <coughs> so A, B, C I don't have a C <laughs> but it f- it's following the structure first letter, second letter, third letter fourth letter, fifth letter and so on beautifully structured and none of it feels forced in fact when you read it if you're don't, if you not paying attention you think oh what a beautiful poem and then you go back and look at the letters of the first line and you go oh how did that do that without making it seem really forced do you know what I mean um, and then the middle chapter. I said the middle chapter is not 22, it's 66. Three lines of each. Aleph, 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 Bait, 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 Gimel, Gimel. It's this highlight of this um, structure in the middle of it all. So it's a book about lamenting, and yet yeah, it it's beautifully constructed. And <clears throat> my students are often surprised. They say, well, once you, when you're in pain, don't you just like write t- terrible things and Disorder and chaos. I said maybe initially, if you start, if you started to just write, maybe. But if you're processing your grief through your writing, and you're spending time writing that poem and crafting it, and through that process you're grieving, I think you would write things like this—beautiful poetry that reflect the pain. Um, <clears throat> and here it is, again, Job three. Incredibly beautiful poetry about suffering. Uh, so, <coughs> that's why we have poems in the Bible about lamenting. It's, uh, it's an expression. And, and poetry does something uh, that goes right past our barriers, doesn't it? That's why most of our songs are in poetry form. So it hits us harder and faster at, at our hearts, at our emotions. So when we sing songs, um, it, it moves us in a way that it may not if we read just ordinary language. Um, <clears throat> so uh, let's, let's parse some of this stuff out. <laughs> You're used to seeing some of this parsed out. So Gabor, this word, Gabor. Let, let the day that I was conceived, that day, when, uh, would you look at that verse for me in, in chapter three, uh, verse three of your translation, of your, of your version. What is that in quotation? Let the day perish which I was in which I was born, and the night with that said blank is conceived. What does your translation say? I'm sorry. A man, a man child. Okay. Anything else? Sorry. Does anyone have boy or child or any other? NIV has boy. NIV has boy. Okay. Man-child. <laughs> that doesn't even translate in our context, does it? A man-child is a man who acts very childish, I think, in my mind. But this is the word, gibor. Uh, it doesn't fit the context. It seems so strange like to think, you don't conceive a man. A gro- fully grown, mighty, warrior type of a man is not conceived at night. A little baby is conceived, right? So, This is why some translations will try and do something with it to point out, oh, if I said uh, uh, the day that mighty warrior was conceived, what? So some translations, the man child is a compromise. (laughs) It's it's a man, but uh, of course a man doesn't get conceived at night. So there's that word gabor. And it's an interesting word to to use. Um, And I just wanted to note that. So that when we get to chapter 38 later, you go, oh, this is why that's there. Um, <clears throat> the, the, we, we've talked about it briefly last time, but the imagery of birth and death, all, all coming from the womb. Uh, the, the word womb does double duty in, in Job 3. It is the thing that gives birth, but it's also reflective of death. Uh, In the Bible, in poetry, uh, you often find the womb to be a metaphorical reference to the grave, which I don't understand. In in our context, you would never use the womb as the grave. But um, people thought of, you know how, uh, when you look at Genesis, you come from dust, and you dust, you return. So it's almost that kind of idea. So you come from a womb, and you return to the womb, and the womb of the earth So the grave is like a womb-like existence there. Um, Take a look at verse 10 of chapter 1 for me. We read this a while ago now. Um, Chapter 1, verse 10. And uh, keep keep chapter three in your uh, just with your thumb with your finger and take a look at verse twenty three. So one ten and three twenty three. This was the conversation that the Satan has with um, the Lord. And when have you considered my servant Job? When when God is bragging about Job. One of the uh, arguments that the Satan makes uh, is to, to discredit Job is to say in verse 10, have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? A hedge on every side. You have blessed the work of his hands. And, and then he goes on. Um, <clears throat> so he's saying, you've protected this man. Of course he's gonna bless you because you've blessed him. You've protected him. You've, you've put a hedge around him on all sides. A symbol of protection. And now look at verse three, uh, chapter 3, verse 23. In his grief, he says, Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden and whom God has hedged in? So the poet is borrowing the word from the narrative prose to give a very different meaning. So the Satan says, hey, you've hedged him in. Of course, you're blessing him and protecting him. So if you're looking from top down, a bird's eye view, and there's, a, there's a, a garden or something, and it's all beautifully hedged in, you think, well, isn't that nice? But imagine if those hedges were very tall and you were in it and you're now on the ground looking up. You see nothing but the hedge. And he says, my way is hidden. My way is hidden. I don't know what's beyond this. I can't see my way because of the hedge around me. So he's turned it around. He's taken what is good and said, oh, I can't see anything. Now what he's talking about there is, I don't know why I'm suffering. I don't know what's going on. And as we said before, when we suffer, We want to know why, don't we? And we ask God, why? Why is this happening? We want to know. I'm not sure if that would ever help. Can you imagine if God said to Job, you're suffering because I had a wager with Satan? You think he'd be like, oh, okay, I'm good now. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Uh, If God ever told us why we're suffering, I don't know if it would actually help. I think it would make things worse. (laughs) At least in our limited understanding, we would see the protection of God as something negative. Job 3 continues with uh, lots of different um, double entendres like that. Uh, One word meaning something, and then... uh, even words like shouts of joy, he's, he's, he's twisting it. Um, but if we could get to that s- the bottom of that, what, what I'm showing you at that bottom of that, that, that first page, um, I had it highlighted, underlined. To notice just the underlined words, day, night, darkness, light, shine, darkness, shadow, blackened, night, darkness, day, night, day, darkness, darkened, daylight, rays of dawn, hide trouble from my eyes. Now, why do, why, how does that relate, hide, hide trouble from my eyes? Um, the darkness and the light. Of course, darkness here um, is symbolic of trouble or death and light for joy and, and life. But what he's also seeing, saying is this. When there's darkness, you can't see. You need the light to see. So you need the darkness to hide trouble. So I, wanna, I don't want to see anything. I don't want to see. He wants to die, is what he's saying. But um, the really significant part of this, and, and, and we're going to skip a little bit and come back to this. If you, so, so if you flip the page, there's a chart that, that uh, has some highlighted words as well. And notice, uh, some of you are with me when we did Genesis. Look at this. Uh, day, even the word above. Darkness, darkness, night, day, month, even, uh, sea monsters like Leviathan and, and turmoil and rest. The poet of Job 3 clearly has uh, Genesis 1 in mind. Genesis 1 is the starting point. And I even said that uh, when we did Genesis. The reason we did Genesis 1, 2, and 3 is because so much of the Bible keeps referring back to Genesis 1. Paul will do it, Jesus will do it, and, and Job is doing it, except he's doing it poetically, and what he's doing is this. He begins the curse. Let there be darkness. Uh, your translation will say, let this day be darkness, or something like that. Let this day... But the Hebrew word... Oh, yeah, I I, I taught it to you. he or was let light be. he be, or, light. Let light be, and light was. Like, how dare light not just, you know, light's not going to say, no, thanks, God, you're the all-powerful God, I'm not gonna be. So God says, let there be light, and light be. What Job says is the exact same Hebrew phrase. It just replaces the word light with darkness. Yehi, choshech, let there be darkness. So he's saying, I'm not going to curse God, (laughs) but I'm going to curse God's creation. Everything God has ever done. So he doesn't dare curse God to his face. That's what he says. But you know what? Everything else is fair game, including Genesis 1, including the first act of creation, light. Let's start with that one. In, In a sense, the poet is saying, it would have been better if God never created anything. even in pain. But it is a beautiful reference, isn't it, to Genesis 1? Uh, and look at all that connection to it. Um, there are scholars who have done a lot of work on this, and there's more than just lexical connection. What I'm showing you is connection just w- with words. so That's the easiest thing you can see. Uh, there are thematic connections and all types of uh, linguistic connections to Genesis 1. So the poet is purposely reminding the reader uh, that connection, literally. Okay, so. Um, <coughs> Job asks three rhetorical questions in his poem. And... I, I, I still do this (coughs) in in most of my classes when we go through rhetorical analysis of text. I ask my students, what's a rhetorical question? And the typical high school English response is, it's an answer that does not require, I mean, it's a question that does not require an answer. I get that all the time. And I have to then correct that. Um, I have to say, no, that's not what the word rhetorical means. Rhetoric in in Aristotelian ideas and Greek rhetoric. Rhetoric means words that, powerfully impact the hearer. Uh, The word rhetoric has taken on some negative connotation recently, hasn't it? In our English, we say, oh, that's just high rhetoric. Like, isn't that a good thing, high rhetoric? But we mean rhetoric in the the sense of rhetoric without substance. But I I don't think uh, Aristotle would have agreed with that. So rhetoric, (coughs) when you hear a beautiful sermon and it hits you, and you go back and listen to that sermon again, you see how the preacher did it. There's rhetoric in it. And rhetorical questions are powerful because the implied answer, because usually a rhetorical question gets asked if all of us can agree that the answer is obvious. That obvious answer to that question is the point. That it's, it's driving home that point to, the, to, to, to such an ef- effect that sometimes when you ask a question and it it comes across as rhetorical, it can sometimes be a little offensive because it's such a strong thing. Rhetorical questions are very strong. So, uh, here's an example. When I go home in the evening and my wife was home that day and uh, I go home, and I ask my wife, hey, why isn't dinner ready? <laughs> why isn't dinner ready? <laughs> I may not be going out. Huh? I, I might be going somewhere alone, right? <laughs> because she will interpret that as rhetorical. <laughs> uh, I, might, I might just be asking, hey, what was your day like? That this, what were the events leading up to this point? I'm just asking for information, but if I ask it as as why isn't dinner ready, she's going to hear it should be ready. It's your fault that it's not. See, so when when a question is interpreted as rhetorical, even if it's not meant to be, it can be offensive because it is such a strong thing. Or uh, if I ask a student, or a student asks me. Um, could I get an extension on that paper and if I, a- if I ask back why should I and I mean give me an excuse like were you sick were you sick? Well, you're out of town what's going on why should I but they immediately go oh sorry why should I no I'm asking you why should I give me a reason I can't just give it to you but if you give me one of those legitimate excuses that's on my syllabus then of course I'll give you an extension but I need to know why why should I But again, it comes across as rhetorical. Now imagine if you actually asked a rhetorical question then. Why should I? You don't don't come to class. You don't do your work. You're always late. Why should I? Whoa. If I'm being really rhetorical, it comes so much stronger than saying, I don't want to give it to you. The indicative statement, I don't want to give it to you. It's not as strong as why should I? Why is this paper late? Well, students don't like that question at all because they don't. They often don't have excuses. Uh, oh, we've we've learned it in Jonah. We've learned it in in, in other places. Uh, there's a question that in Hebrew, ma zot asita? What this you have done? What is this you have done? In Hebrew is 100% rhetorical all the time. It's never, that phrase specifically isn't used to acquire information, but simply to say, what is this you have done? And in English, the the closest would be, how could you possibly have done this? So sometimes God asks his people that. Jonah gets asked that by the sailor. Uh, Oh, Abraham will get asked that by the the Pharaoh in chapter 12 of Genesis when he sells out his wife. Right And his wife is basically now almost uh, Pharaoh's wife, and he, Pharaoh finds out, and he goes to, f- to Abraham, and he goes, "Ma, so, Asita. How could you have done this?" So we talk questions are really, really powerful tools at a poet's hand, and there are three questions that he asks. Uh, the, the first one uh, where did I leave? Oh yes, first one is in verse 11. Why did I not die at birth, expire from the belly? Why did I not die? I should have died. And if I couldn't die, look at the next verse. Why were there knees and breasts? If there were no knees, I would have dropped to the ground. If, if there were no breasts, I would have starved to death. That would have been preferable. Goodness me. And then we read the one that, um, just now, why does God give light to those in misery? If I'm in, if I'm in such misery, why does God continue to let me see things and live and breathe? Just kill me. Wouldn't that be better? So he's got three questions that begin with why. And as you saw earlier, when you ask a why question, like why isn't dinner ready, why is his paper late, why questions are accusatory. Why, rhetorical questions, blame the listener for something. And he's blaming God. Why? 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 Three times. In fact, as I said earlier, when we suffer, that's our go-to question. Why? When we ask why to God, we actually don't want the answer, I don't think. Like I said, I don't think it would help. Uh, What we're really saying is, God, it's your fault. You shouldn't be doing this to me. I don't deserve this, but in a rhetorical way. Job 3 is um, likely a very early writing. And uh, Job, the poetry in Job, if you read the Hebrew, is quite archaic language. It must have been read and understood and very popular in the culture at the time. Here's how I know. Take a look at Jeremiah. Uh, it's in your handout. Um, Jeremiah. Chapter 20. 14 and following. Verses 14 and following. Um, I think I gave you that reference. Yes. So. Jeremiah 20. 14 and following. And and you'll hear it. Even in an English translation, you'll hear hear this. Let the day that I was born be cursed. (laughs) Cursed be the day, or something like that, right? Let the day not be blessed when my mother bore me. Cursed be the man who brought the news to my father saying, a baby boy has been born to you. There's even a proclamation just like Job 3. But let that man be like the cities which the Lord overthrew without relenting and let him uh, hear an outcry in the morning and a shout of alarm at noon because he did not kill me before birth so that my mother would have been my grave and her womb ever pregnant. That's a scary thought. My mother's womb, my grave, and I would stay there forever. Forever. Why did I ever come forth from the womb to look on trouble and sorrow so that my days have been spent in shame? Uh, What Jeremiah is doing is using the poetry of Job to emphasize the suffering uh, uh, that that would result as, as part of God's judgment. So, Job 3, not only is it just a beautiful poetry, in the time of the ancient Israelites, it must have been well-known, so well-known that Jeremiah just simply um, and changes things without saying, hey, did you read Job 3? Okay, we gotta get to Job 38. Uh, So we're gonna skip a couple of things, but if you could go to Job 38. Job 38 is the response of God to Job. What I've I've always loved about Job 38 is that uh, God skips right over uh, the speech of Elihu. Uh, I've I've mentioned Elihu on our first time together. He's the last character to speak. Um, And God ignores this young hothead entirely and and begins. uh, (coughs) Job 38, verse 1. Then the Lord, Yahweh, the covenant name for God, answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this? That darkens counsel by words without knowledge. Now, please gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you and you will instruct me. Now, the first time I read that, uh, I thought, wow, why is God so angry? In fact, the NASB puts an exclamation point at the now you will instruct me, period, exclamation point. Do it now. Sounds sarcastic. You can't dare to instruct me. But I added a word there, please. Because that word is actually in the Hebrew. The word is, it's called a particle of entreaty. It's often translated in the King James as I pray thee. The closest equivalent in English is please. It's a particle of entreaty asking someone to do something when you don't necessarily have the right to the answer to that. So when we ask someone, would you please do this, we don't necessarily have the right to demand it. It's also softening. When you, when you use please as an uh, in instruction, it softens the language, and the word is there in Hebrew. It doesn't get translated in lots of translations. And the first time I saw that, I thought, okay, so do you remember that I told this student, Emily, who asked me that question about why is God so angry, and I had to do like three years of research, and, and that turned into an article and all, all of this. And one of the things I had to research was this short phrase, who is this? Because I used to read that and think, who do you think you are, Job? Who is this? Who speaks words without knowledge? So I did an extensive search on that phrase alone. Who is this? In the entirety of the Old Testament. (laughs) That's why it took so long. I had to look at every occurrence of that. Not once does that get followed by someone something negative. Not once. Most often, it's God. Who is this, the Lord, who comes in power and might? Who is this come who comes in glory? Sometimes it's about David or the king. It's never someone little or bad. It's an expression of, wow, what kind of a man is this that even the wind and the water obey him? Do you remember that phrase in the New Testament? It's that kind of awe. Who is this? <gasps> wow. That's the phrase. But because no one ever just bothered to look that up, that phrase up continuously f- through the entirety of scripture, it sounds sarcastic. Like, who do you think you are, kid? But it's definitely not that. So that part of my scholarship was the one that was most well received because people thought, whoa. We just assume, me, Zay, who is this, would be negative. But when you actually show the evidence, every occurrence in the article I published, it's every occurrence I show and show that it's positive and it's great, positive and great. It's often God. So when when God says to Job, who is this? We have to remember the story. Have you considered my servant Job, who's blameless and upright, fearing God and turning away from evil? There's no one like him on the planet, literally he says. No one like him on the earth. He says that twice. The Lord says that twice. Now, would that same Lord go to Job and say, who do you think you are? Because then that would go back against him, right? God would, say, God would have to answer that question. Who do you think you are? Well, I know, actually. <laughs> You're upright, turning away from evil. You're the best on the, on the earth. I'm sorry. <laughs> My mistake? No. God is continuing that amazed appreciation of Job, saying, who is this? And then look at the rest of that that line. Uh, when God says, "Who is this?" Uh, I skipped too far on my notes. That darkens counsel by words without knowledge. Uh, that that phrase, darkening counsel, words without knowledge. What I mean, of course. Job has been speaking without knowledge. We know this. He doesn't know why he's suffering. He doesn't know why his friends are being such jerks and condemning him. He's been trying to appeal to God, and God finally shows up, and God says, I know you've been speaking without knowledge, but who is this man who can do that? And then that part, gird up your loins like a man... OK, um, Or dressed like a man, or prepare for st- So here's the, the imagi- imagery behind that. So in the ancient world, men wore robes, outer robe and an inner robe. And so if you're about to run fast or fight people in battle, what they did was t- they took the middle between their legs and from the back and tucked it into their belt, so that it essentially creates uh, pants, so your legs can move independently. More easily, so when you gird up, you're basically saying, "I'm a warrior who's about to fight, or I'm doing something that's going to require, you know, uh, uh, extraneous uh, just activity, and I'm going to get prepared." And what God is saying is this: "I'm going to talk to you now, and I want you to prepare, but like a man." This word, Gibor. Uh, Chapter three began with this strange word going, what, how can a gibor be conceived, that's impossible. And then God says, I'm gonna treat you like the gibor that you are. And, And I've mentioned this before. When the almighty God shows up as Yahweh to this one man, he doesn't crush him, he speaks out of the whirlwind. In theology, we call it theophany, when God appears. God appears and talks to one person and says, I'm gonna gonna talk to you. I'm gonna ask you some questions. Now, some of the questions are difficult. Uh, God will say, you know, you're not the creator, I am. Some of the challenges is going to be challenging. I mean, challenges are challenging, right? So it's going to challenge Job, but in a way that honors that man as the Gabor that he is. What follows in chapter 3 uh, is, again, all about creation. Did I give you that? Oh, no, I didn't. All right. So, there are many, many references to light and darkness, and, and, and you can see it um, when, when you read through chapter 38 that so much of it is about the creative act of God. So, uh, verse 4. Again, please don't read a sarcastic, angry tone into this because it's easy to do that when a question is asked. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Nowhere. Nowhere. God alone created. And then look at verse five. Who set its measurements? Do you know it? Uh, look at verse six. Who laid its cornerstone? Verse eight is really interesting. Who enclosed the sea with doors? He said, "The doors of my mother's womb was not shut, was not closed." He's saying, "I even I can close bigger things than a womb." an ocean so all of this is about creation but it's not about the power of creation if you, when you work through it you realize setting measures boundaries, closings, setting things, it's all about order, we talked about that in Genesis 1, God is a God of order and is a meticulous order and not just order, in chapter 38 it's about order with boundaries and limits why is that significant you think? To a man who's suffering. You see it? You hear it? He's saying, All right, first of all, I I want you to know who you're talking to. I am that creator that you wanted to talk to. That's me. You're not the creator I am. And I set limits and boundaries on everything, including your pain. Do you remember that story in the beginning? God twice set the limits of his pain. To Satan, So Satan can, couldn't just have his way. I'm the creator. So Job gets to finally speak with the creator of the universe one-on-one, like a Gabor. In the Bible, by the way, whenever people see God, they're terrified that they would die. You can't see God and live. Job certainly does. In fact, he has a lengthy conversation Uh, of all the people recording the Bible. This might be the longest conversation God has ever had with anybody. And Job walks away, perfectly fine. In fact, happy. There there are so many connections also between Job, not only Genesis, but Job 38 and Job 3. Uh, I can give you some of those really quickly. So Job 38 has connections like... uh, the obviously with creation and, and light, but the word Gabor, we just saw that. Uh, but there are thematic connections and linguistic connections as well. Um, the thematic connections, for example, about womb and pain. Uh, there's so many evidences that show that who, whoever wrote chapter 38 has Job 3 in mind. Just like Job 3 writer had Genesis 1 in mind, we had a long poetic uh, uh, discussion up to this point. So Job speaks first. Chapter three, Eliphaz speaks in four and following, then Job speaks, then his friend uh, Bildad speaks, Job speaks, and Zophar speaks, and it cycles three times. And at the end of this, Elihu interrupts this whole story, and at the end of it, God speaks, and God says, I'm gonna talk to one person, Job, and I'm gonna talk to you about chapter three, which is not chapter, we talked about this last time. Job claims innocence. I wanna sue God, do you remember that? He wants to sue God, and, and he thinks he can win. If God would actually show up. I want to sue God. And here in very legal language in his apologia, his defense. So defending himself, that was his final speech. His final speech is show up and defend yourself because you can't. I'm innocent. And I want to know why you're doing this. God doesn't address that at all. goes way back to chapter 3 and saying, do you remember when you lamented about your pain? I'm going to talk to you about that. I said in our first class together that the response of someone in pain who's asking why is not because, but here I am. And Job gets the here I am of the almighty creator saying, here I am, talking to you. At at the end of this story... um, Chapter 42, verse 7 and following. Let, let's quickly, we have three minutes. Oh, wait, are we out of time? Do we go till? Yeah. Okay, good. Uh, let's go to 42, uh, 7. So it came about, after the Lord has spoken these words to Job, there's a couple of conversations he has, then the Lord, Yahweh said to Eliphaz the Temanite, my wrath is kindled against you and your two friends, because you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. My servant Job. Now, therefore, take yourselves seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up an offering for yourselves. And my servant Job will pray for you. For I will accept him so that I may not do with you according to your folly, because you deserve judgment. Because you have not spoken of me what is right. Repeat it again, as my servant Job has. It began, the whole story began, have you considered my servant Job? And here again, uh, four times, I'm sorry, yeah, four times is repeated. My servant Job, my servant Job, my servant Job. The other thing that I studied, I mentioned this briefly, is I trace that also in the Bible. Whenever God says, my servant Job, and there are eight people, people like Abraham and Moses and David and Isaiah, eight in the entirety of the Old Testament, when God's, God speaks and says, my servant Job or my servant, David, or my servant, Isaiah. The other person in Isaiah who's my servant is in the servant songs, Jesus. Jesus, the the prophecy about Jesus suffering for us, that's my servant also. So here's Job, who went through incredible agony, who laments, who has a conversation with his friends, then with God, and then God refers to him again, as my servant. And then, more importantly, that he spoke rightly. He spoke rightly, and you didn't. When we studied Eliphaz, we saw that Paul cites him as Scripture, cites Eliphaz as Scripture. Eliphaz said the right things. But Job spoke rightly. And this gives me comfort again to know that when we lament together, we're speaking rightly. That's why I walked away from that, uh, that service after 9 11 feeling something was terribly wrong. We spoke wrongly. We were Eliphas. When God wanted us to be Job and break down and say uh, together, communally and individually, Lord, where are you in this? There were children and women and everyone who suffered greatly. Where are you in this? Are you fair? Are you just? In fact, when we suffer individually such great things like Job has, and some of you have experienced that, when we accuse God of injustice, that is speaking rightly. The people who came to me, and I I confess to you that sometimes annoyed me, irritated me, who were speaking the right things, the correct things, and I was really disturbed by that. And my friend Milton, who actually sighed a curse word, and yet was able to comfort me, One of them spoke rightly. But when we, as a community, lack lament together, what we're saying is this. We don't really trust you. That's what we're saying. When my wife has a terrible day, she doesn't let it out on my son. She lets it out on me. And she knows she can do it. I even tell her, take it out on me. When, she's, has, um, when she has days when she's just irritable and can't just be nice to everybody, and she has to be because that's her profession. She, she's, in, she's meeting people, clients, all the time, and she has to be nice. She comes home and she can't do it anymore. I tell her, be as mean as you want to me because I'm not going anywhere. I know you love me. I can take it. I'm a Gabor. I can take it. So when we say to God only nice things, what we're really saying is we don't trust you to take it. We don't want to make you mad. We don't want to say wrong things. So we're going to gingerly say nice things about you and go about our day and never lament together as a church. How sad is that relationship with God that we can't be honest? Will we pray together? Dear Lord, our covenant father and our covenant husband, we thank you that you can take it. We thank you that you, de- you desire a genuine relationship with us, so much so that when we grieve, you want us to lament to you. We thank you for the beautiful words of Job, th- the whole book and the lament and your speech and everything that, that shows us this r- wonderful g- relationship of grace And mercy and love and compassion. Help us, Lord, to return that love with our genuine worship of you, not simply mouthing pretty words, but speaking the words of our hearts. May you receive our worship today in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you so much.